How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title of one scared. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast that celebrates the legacy of all of the genre stuff about that you like. Pornhub for six minutes before starting the show. <laughs> oh man, that's quality stuff, though. The people want to get to know you, and they want to know what you're into. I think personally, we're, we're into pornography. <laughs> <laughs> Who's not? I saw a Pornhub tweet the other day. Guys, stop flagging the videos for nudity. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Sorry to interrupt your. Uh... Intro nope. there, Gary. No, I think yourself, they got sir. it. They know what they're listening to, and they're already fed up. But hey, thank you so much for listening. We're, we're happy to have you. I'm Gary Horde. I'm one of the hosts. I'm co-host Justin Bishop. We are joined today by a special guest, writer, comedian, and the clown prince of podcasting, Aww. Mr. Todd A. Davis. That's very sweet of you, actually. He's That's the so podcast. He's not the podcast host co-host that we wanted but he is the podcast co-host that we deserve yeah that's that's right that's right i'm here to i'm here to bring all those cringe cringe worthy uh a few cans just a few cans of beer and a couple of blunts you know most of the cringe worthy stuff that exists in the world today i think was sparked by the movie we're discussing just, <laughs> this is, you're not wrong sir you are not wrong so, so this week we are continuing our look at christopher nolan's dark knight trilogy with the film that I guess gives the trilogy that name, 2008's The Dark Knight. Uh, last week we talked about Batman Begins. Uh, Batman Begins was a hit. It was a success, both yes. critically and commercially. It was oh, the yeah. eighth highest grossing film of 2005 in the U.S. So I thought it would have been higher than that, but it was the. That's I mean, that's pretty good. good. 2005 was, was a rocking year, I guess. I, I guess think uh, there might have been like a lingering, just still a little bit of a sting from and I know we're not talking about Schumacher stuff, but I think, I think there might've been a few people who were just like, yeah, eight highest grossing film is still pretty damn good. You know? but and, yeah. and it was the ninth grossing worldwide. It was nominated for an Academy award uh, for Wally Fister cinematography. As we discussed last week, it's been called one of the most influential films of the 2000s. It basically spawned the modern comic book film genre as we know it today. So of course, Hollywood does what it always wants to do when a movie is a big success and they want another one. Yep. So they wanted a sequel. Warner Brothers and DC wanted a sequel to it. And they wanted the creative team from the original film to return. Uh, Nolan, when he was making Batman Begins, wasn't sure that that was going to be the case, but he signed on pretty quickly in in the wake of that film's release. Hey, just for the record, if you want to know, I just just pulled it up because we're in the age of the internet. This this Wikipedia article has Batman Begins listed as ninth, but I can sort of see some of these. Number one was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And uh, number two is episode three. Uh, number three was Chronicles of Narnia, then War of the Worlds, King Kong, uh, Madagascar, 
Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Madagascar is <laughs> above above Batman Begins. Yeah, Wait for the year. For, for the year. Million. For the year. Okay. The year. That's Highest what I was like. Films of 2005. Mr. and Mrs. Smith beat it. Charlie of the Chocolate Factory beat it. Then oh, Batman gross. Begins. Ugh. Just barely <laughs> above by like literal hundreds of thousands of dollars above. Just almost like a presidential race. Batman Begins <laughs> did manage to squeeze out a victory over Hitch. So how about that? Now, according to Box Office Mojo, Batman Begins is number seven. No, oh, well, above Madagascar. Well, nobody knows. Then I guess I don't know. Well, I we trust do know Box is that Mojo. either well, Box Office Mojo is like the industry standard for for box office numbers. Uh, what we do know is that it was beat by Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is sad. Mm. Well, sad to me. It's it's a number one. A <laughs> number one. Well, I guess they should have gotten Johnny Depp for the Joker. Oh, Jesus Christ. Please yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so Nolan, Christopher Nolan was, of course, fully willing to return for the sequel, but he also had enough clout to say to WB that he's like, hey, if I'm going to return, then I want to be able to do a not Batman movie in, in between. I wanted a palate cleanser so that I'm not just immersed in the world of Batman for the rest of my life. And he did. In 2006, he directed The Prestige, which starred Hugh Jackman and, of course, his Batman co-star, Christian Bale. Uh, that movie, again, the, the Prestige is awesome. Maybe we'll talk about it on the show one day. Yeah. It is. It has held up incredibly well. And honestly, mm. I think it's in the top two or three Christopher Nolan movies. Oh, uh, it, was a, yeah. it was a major critical and commercial success as well. It brought in over $109 million at the box office. Uh, that same year, 2006, production on the next Batman film began, and Nolan announced the title of his follow-up to Batman Begins, a film that would hit theaters two years later and become what is considered possibly the greatest comic book movie of all time. I guess we can debate that, but I think that is a general consensus. That movie, of course, the movie we're talking about today is The Dark Knight. Where do we begin? A year ago, these uh, cops and lawyers wouldn't dare cross any of you. I mean, what happened? So what are you proposing? It's simple. Kill the Batman. <laughs> Here's my card. Rachel's told me everything about you. I certainly hope not. Someone's told me that we'd be together. Did you mean it? Bruce, don't make me your only hope for normal life. You're Alfred, right? That's right, sir. Any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? Oh, you have no idea. I've seen now what I have to become to stop men like him. The night is darkest just before the dawn. And I promise you, the dawn is coming. And here we go. This city deserves a better class of criminal. I'm gonna give it to him. Either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Dun -dun. Dun -dun. Is that you doing the score? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of the score cool. there. Good job. Thanks. So before the release of Batman Begins, screenwriter David S. Goyer wrote a treatment for two follow-up sequels uh, th that would introduce the Joker and Two-Face to Nolan's version of Gotham City. So his original idea was to have the Joker as the second film's villain, and Harvey Dent would be a character in it, right? And then the Joker would scar Dent during the Joker's trial, which would kind of open the third film. 
which of course would turn him into Two-Face, then Two-Face would go on to be the villain of that film. So Goyer, who, who wrote the first draft of The Dark Knight, he cited The Long Halloween as a major influence on the film's storyline. Uh, we talked about the, Jeff Loeb and, and Tim Sale last week. And he also credited the Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill story, The Joker's Five-Way Revenge from 1971, in which the writers kind of reintroduced the Joker. Is that a story that you're familiar with, Todd? To be honest, uh, anybody who's looking for, you know, a really solid, like, classic Joker story, it's a really great place to start. You can get it on Comixology for 99 cents if you keep your eyes open. It's it, it's worth it's worth giving it a look. It's just the one where the Joker says boner a lot. That you always see in those memes and stuff. Uh, I don't recall. It's been a while since I've read it, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so although Goyer wrote the first draft of the script, the final screenwriting credits would go to Nolan and his brother, Jonathan. So for research, Christopher Nolan had his brother watch Fritz Lang's, uh, a Fritz Lang movie called The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. Have you guys heard of this movie? Are you familiar with it? I am not but, familiar with this. Movie. Yeah, outside of research for this for this episode today, no, I have not. It's heard. been one that I've I've never seen it. Uh, it's been one that I have always I, I've I'm not always, but for years have been curious about because I I love the Fritz Lang movies that I have seen. Uh, it's one I believe Criterion released way back in the day, you know, and Nolan called the film the uh, essential research for anyone attempting to write a supervillain because the, the Dr. Mabuse is a sort of supervillain character. And that movie is actually a sequel as well. Fritz Lang did a film in 1922 called uh, Dr. Mabuse the Gambler. So this movie, it came out oh, about 11 years later. He created a sequel to his silent film. Is, I don't know. It was kind of kind of funny that both of them, that, you know, he's using a sequel as as research for his new sequel. Is Testament um, also silent or is it a talkie? No, no, it was it was out in 1933. So uh-huh. it's a talkie. Fritz Lang's first talkie was M, which I think was 1931 or 32. So this would have been like his follow one of his follow ups to that. Uh-huh. Which M, by the way, if you've never seen, not to get on a Fritz Lang tangent too much, but M is one of the best like serial killer movies ever made. Fun. Highly recommend it. Nice. So Nolan decided to avoid any sort of origin story for the Joker once they decided on him as like the main villain for this. He instead wanted to portray his rise to power. So in an interview with MTV News, he said, this is a quote from Nolan, the Joker we meet in the dark night is fully formed. To me, the Joker is an absolute. There are no shades of gray to him, maybe shades of purple. He's unbelievably dark. He burst in just as he did in the comics. So what he's saying, we don't know how he became the Joker. We're not getting that creation story like we did in Tim Burton's version. He's just, the Joker just is. He's already here. He just comes out of nowhere and rains hell upon Gotham. And that was always kind of his thing in the comics was, I mean, uh, of course, until like, uh, you know, uh, killing joke. Right. Nobody really attempted to give him a definitive, a definitive uh, origin story. He was always just kind of this omnipresent, you know, super uh, evil, almost like a force of nature. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's the best way to put it. Just like a force of nature. Well, what's interesting is like, I mean, one of the things I like about the Joker is that he's supposed to be just unpredictable and just wild, and you don't. At any point, he could do anything. I think the second you start diving into like an origin story, you're uh, tinkering with starting to be able to predict stuff about this person based on what you know about them. If you know nothing about them, that makes that all the more 
uh, believable, which I think I was reading a lot about Chris Nolan and Jonathan Nolan. God, God bless them because they left David Goyer's name on the script. I saw a quote from him where he said, I, I can't believe my name is on a movie this good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, uh, you know, they were reading a lot about game theory is, is what they talk about a lot when they, they made this movie, which for anybody that doesn't know is like, you know, under like normal capitalism, I, I could pay Todd a hundred bucks. Say, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks if you could make something I really need. Or, or like if you can run a mile in seven minutes and Todd can like, predictably like try to train and get better and get good at every at running and he does it and I pay him a hundred dollars that's like the standard thing but like game theory is like but what happens when you're playing chess for instance I guess that'd be a good one it's like that's two people are playing chess and they both want to win now each move that one person makes is predicated on what the other person did right before that and so then you could try to start predicting what might happen. Or like if there's businesses producing the same thing, every marketing move they make or whatever, it, it's determined by like what the other businesses are doing. So game theory is about like trying to figure out like what's this person going to do next, basically. But but the thing with it is, is like there's always the completely unpredictable side of things that human nature is such that you, you may never really know. You may right. never nail it down because Not a human entirely. at some point will duck when they're supposed to jump and so like it's it's about trying to nail that down can you ever predict what this person's going to do so i think that's where it plays in with the joker stuff it's yeah. just having this unpredictable this wild card in the middle of everything and batman's so straightforward and focused they're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum for each other right right well i mean and i'll sure i'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later but once we start discussing the ferry the ferry boat scene um that's where the prisoner dilemma comes in and I, yes. I sort of fell down a rabbit hole about that but oh, yeah, we'll get sure. there in a minute i'm sure but I, I do think that the decision that jonathan and and christopher nolan made to not delve into the joker's origin story i think it one it makes the joker a more like gary said unpredictable threat but also this isn't the joker's story you know this is not about him as a character harvey dent in fact is the one with like the story arc he's the one that changes the most throughout the story, even more so than Batman. Right. Uh, two. This is Two Face's origin story, not the Joker's. The Joker's just a like, like I said, a force of nature who is facilitating the change. You know, in both Batman and in Harvey Dent. That's a really yeah. Good you're abs- yeah. You're absolutely right about that. Good job, several- Justin. Let's end this thing. All right, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Several actors from the previous film, including Christian Bell, Michael Caine, Gary Oldman, and Morgan Freeman, all returned for the sequel. But, of course, there was one key role that was recast, and that was the role of Rachel Dawes. So initially, it was reported that Katie Holmes was planning to come back for the sequel, but she ended up turning it down inexplicably to film a movie called Mad Money, which is not starring Jim Cramer, but stars Diane Keaton and Queen Latifah. And Katie Holmes was never heard from again. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Mad Money, I, I recognized the poster when I looked it up, so I something triggered, like I guess I remember the trailers or something, but it has been largely forgotten, of course, was barely noticed at all if it, when it was released. It barely broke even at the box office, and it's it's sitting at like 22% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it got, it got pretty bad reviews. Roger Ebert gave it one and a half stars so she turned down a movie that currently sits at number four on the imdb top 250 for mad money i recall and maybe you guys can 
corroborate this or deny based on because i'm sure i was spending a lot of time with her at this time though <laughs> well it was i recall that it was because she was connected with tom cruise and i think that was around the time that i was jokingly gonna reference scientology here that that was probably the decision yeah process. yeah Maybe probably, bad it may have been somewhere behind the scenes the the story that the line that i heard was she was bringing the wrong type of attention to the show so she was not asked back Hmm. Interesting. I, I, well, how and, how and true that is, I don't know. Or after remember. Batman Begins, there she know. was certainly in talks to return. So I don't know when at what point that changed. But regardless, Maggie Gyllenhaal stepped into the role. Maggie Gyllenhaal is very good in the role. I think. I think she's arguably better than Katie Holmes was. I think she's uh, fantastic. I saw like Sarah Michelle Geller, Isla Fisher, Emily Blunt. And Rachel McAdams all were interested to see a couple of those working. Yeah. 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 Uh, I could really see Emily Blunt working in that role. But I'll Maggie Gyllenhaal Rachel McAdams, because just... didn't she end up working with uh, Chris Nolan on something else? Or am I thinking? Mm, no. I, I, I can't may... recall anything. Really. Yeah, I, I think, think I'm, so. I'm mistaken about that. <laughs> that's why I'm not. That's why I'm a special guest. All right, let's end this thing. (laughs) So as for new characters in the film to be cast, of course, we're talking Harvey Dent and the Joker. So Aaron Eckhart ended up getting cast as the Joker, but before he was cast in the role, Liev Schreiber, Josh Lucas, and Ryan Felipe had all expressed interest in the role. Mark Ruffalo had actually auditioned for the role. Uh, Matt Damon and Hugh Jackman were also reportedly considered for the role as well. Ultimately, Nolan went with Aaron Eckhart, who he had also considered for the lead role in Memento years earlier. I so, wish I could. I wish I had a cigarette here so I could become that meme and like light up and just be like, Josh Lucas, there's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's the last time you watched Sweet Home Alabama. Right. Or that, that one movie with Jamie Foxx with the, the robotic stealth bomber or whatever it was. You remember that oh, movie? St- no. uh, wasn't it called Stealth? I think it was called Stealth. And like Jamie Foxx was one that. of the pilots. Josh Lucas, I think, um, was one of the pilots. Uh, uh, Jessica Biel? And I think it was Jessica Biel. You're right. Yeah. And then they had a robot, uh, an AI. Yeah. It goes bad. Wow. It's like their flying buddy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so for the role of the Joker, some of the actors who publicly showed interest in the role included Paul Bettany, Adrian Brody, Steve Carell, and Robin Williams. Steve Carell is the weirdest choice out of those, to be honest. I remember hearing talk of Robin Williams at the time. I think that would have been a horrible choice, as much as I love Robin Williams. Well, I feel like he was he tied won- to it always back, like, in the 80s. Every version, yeah. every version. Everybody has things like, how crazy would it be if Robin Williams went bad? Right. <laughs> they finally but got him eventually. With like Christopher, yeah. I mean, well, he, he had worked with Nolan as well. He had worked with Nolan on uh, on Insomnia. That's so right. That's there was precedent for it. But of course, Nolan wanted Heath Ledger, who he'd wanted to work with in the past on several projects, including Batman Begins, where Nolan approached him for the role of Bruce Wayne Batman. But Ledger turned it down. I guess it wasn't interesting enough for him. So Ledger gets cast as the Joker. And to prepare for his role, he lived alone in a hotel room for a month by himself not really leaving, kind of working to create the character's posture, his voice, his whole personality, like he's cultivating this personality. He even kept a diary where he wrote as the Joker, like in character as the Joker, recording the character's thoughts and feelings. Like he basically lived as the Joker for a month. Jeez. It's probably not great for your mental uh, Probably not. Have either of you guys seen that documentary, I Am Heath Ledger? 
I did see I some of not. it, actually. I had some notes from it. I mean, I know one of the things was, you know, his voice coach on the movie, uh, Jerry Grinnell, I think I had was his name here. He said that uh, that licking the lips tick came from there was a prosthetic they used in his mouth. It would start to come off and he would like have to put it back in place with his tongue or something but it just eventually became, <laughs> became like, this like reptilian sort of that's interesting because yeah. that's, that's a very like that's a, that kind of a thing that you think about when you think about his version of the joker is that that weird little tick uh, you know because he's got all of these weird ticks and i and i was seeing somewhere where like nolan asked eckhart to not have any tick don't yeah he didn't want him doing like a big cartoony villain voice when he finally turns into into two-face yeah he would you know he wanted it to be way less showy uh i think was the word he used for it so like eckhart was like modeling after like robert f kennedy i think is what he said in one interview yeah Um, he even had his hair he grew his hair out and had it styled and like lightened like the color lightened to make him seem more like like a kennedy type and I think this was right after Thank You for Smoking, too. So I think that yes. even lent, like he had that. It, I think Nolan saw that and thought he was like a perfect DA here. The the stuff I saw with Ledger was like, you know, obviously, like you said before, they had met on Batman Begins and, and Nolan liked him, but he'd kind of forgotten. But as they were reading, he like somehow remembered Ledger and then just was like, no, this it's this guy. It's always been this guy. I think he thought, well, he's, his, his exact quote for it was, is he's, he knew from the second he met him, he was fearless. That was the thing that he thought would mean the most. He also just talks about the eyes. Cause I think this is a Nolan thing that he just loves people's eyes. Just like last week, he, about, that was the yeah. thing that sold him with bail. But yeah, that, that hotel room sounds crazy, man. Like he he's in there developing like his laugh, every single tick, you know, the, we've the all look. seen the video, like the side by side of him and, Tom Waits, like a Tom Waits interview from the 70s where they sound exactly alike. So whether, I mean, of course, we'll never know if if that was an actual inspiration, but it seems plausible as well. He got to talk a little bit too to Jerry Robinson, I saw, who was one of the original creators of the Joker back in like 40. Like they brought him on as a consultant, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. But yeah, I mean, and the the look of him, you know, I've seen everything from like he was going for a Sid Vicious uh, and... Malcolm McDowell and Clockwork Orange look to Ichi the Killer to the Crow, you know, like all of these different things. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly. Definitely where it got goes. the Ichi the Killer, uh, the Glasgow smile going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That grin, like it has that. Um, what's the movie? The The Man Who Laughs. Um, yeah, there is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Ledger was also allowed to shoot and direct the videos that the Joker sends out as warnings, which I, I think is really interesting. And Nolan was so impressed with the first shoot that he did that he didn't even show up. He didn't feel the need to be present when Ledger shot the video. The next one, which was when the Joker kidnaps the reporter that's played by uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Like Nolan's like, you got this. I don't even need to be there because he was just doing that shit on his own, which I think is great. Uh, it, it, I would have loved to have seen, I feel like Ledger would have become one of those actors who becomes a really interesting director if he had been given the chance. Well, I think even in that, uh, that documentary, I am Heath Ledger, they talk about him as a director and Ben Harper talks about working with him on a, on a music video project or something. And, uh, just talking about what it was like to have him and how he was, how he was such a great creative mind and just you know, artistically speaking, just really amazing. I, you know, breaks the heart that he didn't get to. He was also apparently a, like a master chess player. Do you guys know this about Heath Ledger? Like Like he would go out in New York and like, play just play people out on the streets chess and always win like according this is according to his mom which you you know who you take with a grain of salt i guess but he was like 
close to becoming like a a grandmaster. Dude wow. was like a genius. Like he should have worked with Kubrick. Right. Well, eh, that would have been tough. <laughs> Kubrick. I was Kubrick. just thinking of the chess thing. Didn't Kubrick like to play chess? Yeah, yeah, but Kubrick was, was dead by almost a decade by this point. So Well, he would have won uh, that one too. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the other actors that appear in small roles in the film include uh, Todd's old friend, Eric Roberts. Yeah. Uh, oh, here, quick fun fact about Todd. Todd was in a film, <laughs> not just a film, a faith-based martial arts film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that starred Eric Roberts. And by in it with him, I mean, Todd was like an extra. Yeah, I was an extra. You really have to look hard to even catch a glimpse of my shoulder, I think. <laughs> uh, but I did get to hang out with Eric Roberts for like three days on set. It was yeah. actually really cool. Nice guy. <laughs> Very nice guy. He is all about the work, man. He, he loves you know, mustard. Be- yeah, he loves mustard. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lord. And yeah, and the, he? no, he lo- he look, he's a working actor. He loves he a lo- paycheck. He loves he loves a, <laughs> he paycheck. Loves a paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of cool that he'll he'll show up. He'll show yeah. up and do the work. And to be honest, I've I've seen the movie. He'll kill it too. <laughs> I think I so, saw somewhere that like I mean he won over like uh, Bob Hoskins and James Gandolfini auditioned for Moroni. And really, so, wow. Uh, wow. That, uh, so, I mean, he's great in the role. He really actually. Is. I actually did get to because I didn't want to be I didn't want to be that guy because when we're quick story of us on the set um, while we were there between shots, one of the PAs walked by him and and I saw him lean over and whisper. It was Ramirez. And I was just like, oh, don't (laughs) don't do that. But when I got to finally talk to him, I was like, hey, just to let you know, like huge Batman fan. And, you know, like every, you know, like everything else, as they announced certain casting, I was kind of, you know, iffy on that just because I am such a big fan. Did you show but him your tattoo? I did not show him my <laughs> tattoo, <laughs> although we did talk tattoos. But um, so I, I said, you know, uh, that first shot of you sitting in that chair, leaning back, you know, in the courtroom, I was like, nailed it. He was like, oh, thanks. He, he seemed very appreciative of that. That's <laughs> just, awesome seeing the position i was like i was very familiar with the character and you nailed it sir he was like oh thanks and, and using someone nice guy. like using someone like eric roberts or, or anthony michael hall like in a very small yeah. role uh kind of goes back to what we talked about last week where you know he was casting it like donner cast superman by getting you know well-known actors or very well-respected actors in kind of small roles because you've got like michael jai white's in there not that michael jai white is like a huge star although he's a fairly more well-known probably now than he ever has been because of his, his show on uh, stars. But uh, you've got tiny Lister in there. You've got William Fickner at the beginning as the bank yeah. manager who is great. Isn't he, a, isn't he an Academy award winner? Well, I don't know. William Fickner has been in so many movies and he's yeah. so damn good, dude. But he's I, really I love good. He's great. Like, just that's in the only scene he gets. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then of course you had Killian Murphy coming back and how did we say we were pronouncing that? Cillian? I guess Killian. Killian. I said Cillian, I think, last <laughs> week. I don't care. Uh, he comes back in a small role as the Scarecrow. But here's one of my favorite bits of casting news on this. Dwight Yoakam was approached for a role for a role as either the bank manager or as one of the corrupt cops. So Dwight Yoakam, which who's a great actor, by the way. Dwight Yoakam is in some of the, you know, he's not in a lot of film roles, but go watch him in Panic Room or Sling Blade. Like the dude's got legit chops. Uh, but he decided that he w- he turned it down because he wanted to focus on recording his album, Dwight Sings Buck, which is a collection of Dwight Yoakam covering Buck Owens songs. And it's a great album. So I'm honestly glad that he did that. 
Yeah, but I mean, the songs are already written, so how much focus do you need, Dwight? Come on. Well, he had to do it justice to his hero. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, Speaking of musicians, though, you know who is in the film? In a very small role. Yes, I do. Prince? (laughs) Matt Skiba. What? Where? (laughs) Very, very briefly. It's literally like he's he's like an extra. It's in the scene where they're trying to get it. The crowd's like trying to get the someone to come out. The, the, the reporter, the guy who is like talking to the cops who says that he knows who the Batman is or talking to the reporter saying he knows who the Batman is. And the Joker calls in and they say the first person to, you know, kill this guy, whatever. Yeah. No, actually, now that you're saying that, I swear to God, I think I turned to Jennifer was like, who is that? That other person looks familiar. (laughs) Yeah. When, when, when you've got the crowd outside of the window, Matt Skiba is, is in that crowd. Well, good for that guy. That's that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Yeah. I thought it was cool. I, I'd forgotten Killian Murphy was back in this one, even in that small part. I, I remember love that he, he shows up in Rises. So easily. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's cool because I think he's like the only villain who's just like repeated. Returned. Yeah, yeah in these movies and yeah. like yeah. Batman movies. Usually they just get 86 and they're gone. And uh, Well, I like the idea that he gets taken down so easily at the beginning of this movie because it's almost like Christopher Christopher Nolan when he was developing this movie, he he says the theme of this movie is escalation. That makes that kind of fits in with that because in by this point in Batman's career, like Scarecrow's small fries. He's got bigger fish that he's going to have to worry about soon in the Joker and you have to see that Batman has gotten to the point where this guy who he who was a threat in the first film is now not a threat at all. Right. Before we move on uh, about the making of the film, I want to talk about Heath Ledger. Why? Because he's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... I, Oh, well, okay, fine. Now, his performance is, of course, now universally praised. I mean, it's considered one of the great performances, you know, of of all time, I would say. It's it's like one of those that's... People talk about Heath Ledger's role in this, like they talk about Marlon Brando and On the Waterfront or James Dean and, and, and Rebel Without a Cause, you know. I don't but like I how remember. you're going to try to skip right over Christian Bale and how he managed to just come in at the right size this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they he didn't need to bulk up as much because they gave him a new suit. Yeah. But I remember when Heath Ledger was cast and people were kind of underwhelmed when it was announced. You know, people were not like super into it because, I mean, he, he had just come off of Brokeback Mountain, great performance and a great film. and But he didn't have like this huge he wasn't a huge star he wasn't like a jack nicholson coming into the role right he didn't have this like legendary career prior to coming in so there wasn't a lot for people to get excited about he turned in solid performances in good films but he had not done a ton of films i think i think think the the general the general thought amongst everybody was like Really, the guy from Ten Things I Hate About You. Right, right. Hey. The guy from A Knight's Tale, really? Like, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say was generally like I a, think people thought of him as a pretty boy. He had like this, a like a teen idol kind of, yeah. you know. Yeah. 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 He had the he had the role as the handsome son in the Patriot, you know. Right. Like, you know, he just seemed like that, I don't know, just that guy. But there was nothing that was like culturally iconic in his career, you know. Like if right. he had lived i think the joker would have been probably known as the role that turned him from like an actor to like a movie star i think this would have been that star making role um but but i do think that him being less of a known entity than someone like nicholson was actually a blessing in disguise because it allowed ledger to really disappear into the role of the joker you know whereas in nick nicholson as much as i love 
Burton's Batman and love Nicholson, he's playing Jack Nicholson. Yeah. You know, yeah. he is playing yeah. a version of himself in that movie. To be honest, yeah, because it's he's so consistent with the voice and even, you know, the the tick, you know, the lip licking tick it helps you forget. I mean, you forget real quick, like, oh, yeah, he's Knight's Tale. 10 things I hate about well, you. He, well, you, forget, you forget all about that in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, because he's he's fucking gritty and slimy and dirty. And he's kind of hunched over and he has this lurch to his walk that's almost like a wounded animal. Like, you know, it's it's a really incredible performance. Like, it's a fully physical performance. It's so so far away from the pretty boy thing we were just talking about. I mean, he's exactly opposite of that. And just his voice changes, like you said, his whole body, everything about him is different than anything you've ever seen Heath Ledger do before. So it'd be easy to get lost and just forget that this person, I mean, the closest you can even come to recognizing that it's Heath Ledger is probably the the cop scene, you know, where he's right. got the makeup off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, even looking, even as weird as he is, you know, initially, when he gets into that kitchen with those other mob bosses, you see that he's also a force to be reckoned with. You see yes. him, you see him take down a guy so fast. Yeah. And like, there's also, there's also like a restrained power because one of my favorite shots of him is him backing out of the room. And then he, him kicking that door open and just, just super quick exiting left. That's great. It's such a subtle thing, but like, it just goes to show you, like, he's in complete control of what, of what's happening. And there's this restrained power of this guy who's very unassuming and very easily to dismiss as crazy or whatever. Right. I mean, as far as like jokers go, I mean, that's another thing about this one is like there's the it's like the idea of him being total chaos and anarchy is an illusion in some ways because he very clearly (laughs) has thought out like everything he does. Yeah. (laughs) Like he's in control, like you said. So it's just kind of an interesting aspect of the way they wrote him. And Nolan makes it pretty clear from the start that. Yeah, I said before, this is not the Joker's story, but this is the Joker's movie, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, He doesn't have the arc, but he's the driving force behind everything that happens in the the movie. And Nolan establishes that from the very beginning because I, I touched on it last week, but the trilogy as a whole is really about Bruce Wayne's journey. It's about the beginning of Batman. Obviously, the Batman begins to Batman's end. I mean, the, the, the trilogy encompasses basically his entire career. I know there are time jumps in between films, but the, his confrontation with the Joker in this film fundamentally changes the trajectory of that story. Like this is a turning point in Batman's career. You know, this is a turning point in Bruce Wayne's story. Well, he even says that in Batman Begins, he he doesn't want to be a vigilante. He wants to be a symbol. Right. Well, in this movie, he gets the opportunity to make that choice. And he has a real, it's a lot easier said than done because being that symbol means you, yeah, they might love you. They're probably going to hate you because of all the things that you're really going to have to do for the good of the city. But yes, you know, And, and you know, Batman begins starts the first frames of Batman begins are of Bruce Wayne. Of, of him in the Himalayas or wherever. This movie starts with the Joker. The very the first scene is the Joker. It's introducing the Joker to the audience. And now Nolan has called 
uh, Michael Mann's heat as a major influence on this film. And I think that's very clear from the opening Bank Heights, which is a very Michael Mann heat-esque in execution. The opening scene of this movie is honestly, in my opinion, one of the greatest opening establishing scenes in a movie. It's just as a set piece by itself, even standing alone from the rest of the movie, it just, it tells a story from beginning to end, you know, that, that opening sequence Uh, it manages to create a sense of like dread and anticipation before the villain's face is ever even seen. You know, yeah. and I, this is probably a good time to note that right. the uh, the yeah. score by Hans Zimmer and, and James Newton Howard, I think goes a long ways in, in helping establish that, that well, feeling. Even, I, I wanted to know, make sure we hit on the music this time because we completely skipped that last time and Zimmer and James Newton Howard, like they worked together on Begins and this one and they just, they were together, like locked in a room making this stuff and, and yeah. My well, God. I think it's so, and I, I, and both of you guys can attest that I'm not the biggest music aficionado, but I thought it was so interesting that they basically Batman and Joker, they get two notes, but it tells you everything about yeah. what's happening there. You get the, but then you've got, and just that it's, it's almost nails on a chalkboard, but it draws you in rather than repulsing you. It's hard for me to explain, but it's so fascinating that they took the same approach to these two very opposite characters. Well, you only ever hear the Batman theme twice in this movie. Like it it just, yeah. And they were going for this. Like they didn't want the heroic theme throughout this. They would like that. You'd hum the Batman music or something. They were looking for like more complexity and darkness and like the characters. And so I think Zimmer called it musical foreshadowing. The times that you do hear it, it's just like, like, it's coming, but like, it's just like a little tease that Batman's going to be there. Uh, But his goal with this one is intensity. Uh, He doesn't want like, I mean, he specifically talks about not wanting a blockbuster style score in this movie, especially when it comes to the Joker. Like he was experimenting since we're talking about it. I mean, this guy was experimenting so much during this time like Zimmer I mean he he describes like punk rock literal like razors on piano wire he he was just going for whatever he could to make this uncomfortable and and Nolan Nolan tells the story about actually asking Zimmer at one point he's like hey let me hear what you've got so far and Nolan gave him a recording and he said it was like 9,000 bars long of just stuff that Zimmer had put down and uh, he said he listened to it. It took the entire flight from London to Hong Kong. And he said wow. it was the most maniacal shit he'd ever heard. It was like, like I said, razors on strings. It was like pencils being cracked on the floor, just mayhem. And uh, he said, for lack of a better word, it was just all unpleasant. <laughs> and uh, wow. he said he called Zimmer when he lands. It's like, okay, yeah, the Joker, he's somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure where, but I'm, I'm just going to let you find him from here. <laughs> well, Zimmer, Zimmer, what a daunting he, task of like, hey, you know, <laughs> this this character who's more of a force of nature that we have no clue to his origins. Can you sort of sum that up with just music? And he have nails fun. it because that's the thing with this one. <laughs> he I mean, does nail this it. This isn't yeah. a typical bad guy score. This is uncomfortable. It's anarchy. Uh, what I especially love, though, is going back to what, what brought it up is like in that scene, especially like where it's focusing in on 
his back, standing there alone. I mean, the first notes of his score, you should go listen to his incredible score. It's just a cello and it's this scraping across the cello. It's eerie and it like yeah. pulls you in. And it's like right before it just goes fuck nuts. It's the Joker. And so yeah. it's like, yeah. it. it's just crazy. I think Zimmer said he literally wanted to write something people would end up hating. <laughs> but like, well, Zimmer as, Zimmer has a really interesting way of thinking as a as a composer, I think, and I think it's you know his background. Before, of course, he's like I'd say one of the more well known film composers out there now. But he got his start in like the punk scene. He he produced uh, like the Buggles, like Video Killed the Radio Star, which is not very punk, but it's in that sort of new wave scene. And he produced and played a synthesizer on, I think it was the fourth album by The Damned, the Black Album. So, which is a, a well-known UK punk band. So he like has his origins in anar- anarchic, you know, kind of background and experimental music. And and, and it's worth mentioning too, even with uh, Harvey Dent, and listen to his music. It's all like brass and heroic, like American hero stuff at first, but slowly as two faces formed, it's less melodic. It's less brass. It's not bright. It starts to get darker and darker as he it's it's there's a lot of thought put into this soundtrack and and well worth it. I mean, it's one of like five movies uh, that is a purely orchestral soundtrack that has won a Grammy award for best score. I think. Wow. And I was uh, listening to it today as I was like writing up notes for the show. I was I had it on in the background. It's a great score. So I, I, I go think back. we got that. Bes- I, I, I say that actually, it may be that it was one of five that won a Grammy for best score that wasn't for some reason nominated for an Academy Award for hmm. best score. I want to go back real quick to that opening scene, because another thing I think that helps to establish that the Joker as a character is before you ever see the character, before you ever see the Joker and he makes his big reveal, he, the other criminals that are involved in that heist are talking about him. And they're talking about him like he's not just their boss, but he's this sort of mythical figure almost. Like they, they kind of, right. it's kind of how they're like this unknowable figure. None of them seem to have actually met him, you know, as like much of a, as much of a urban legend as he is. This guy, a right. He's this guy right. living in yeah, the shadows, yeah. you know, kind of how people talked about Batman in the first movie. Right. And it establishes who the character is, you know, before you, you've got, you know, that he's manipulative, you know, that he's, he's kind of ruthless in the way that he sets his crew up to kill each other. You know, that he's like, the guy's got a brain on him, but he is evil. And you know, all this before you ever meet him, because you don't really meet him, at least not, you don't know it's him until the very end of that scene. And you've got that, you know, the way Nolan shoots it in that amazing close up of Heath Ledger's face is just incredible yeah it's it's fantastic yeah you see these guys like killing each other off as they're working through you even see the one guy who seems kind of like a badass i still think it's so funny like where you know william fickner's walking through with the shotgun like firing off shots and the guy's like that was six right or something <laughs> and then he stands <laughs> yeah. up and he gets shot i don't know I thought that was really cool yeah oh and, and and the attention to detail and i won't go down the whole rabbit hole yet on this part but just for instance, that shotgun that William Fickner has right there, Joker has that shotgun for the rest of this movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He hangs <laughs> onto it. That's great. Just, and I just thought yeah. that was amazing for some reason. And here, here's why I think this, to me, this version of the character is, I think, the best that we've ever seen on film. And it's that he's not only 
brilliant. He is brilliant, but he does seem to be genuinely unhinged, like genuinely scary and insane uh, in a way that other Joker, other versions of the Joker have not uh, in a way that, that Jack Nicholson's did not, or God help us, Jared Leto's. Uh, he's not motivated by money or power, which is what Nicholson's Joker was motivated by. Right. He's not motivated by revenge, like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker was. You know, he is a nihilist. He's an agent of chaos. He just wants to watch the world burn. He he gets joy simply in inflicting pain on other people, just for yeah. the hell of it. No no reason. Like no, there's no point to what he's doing other than to create utter chaos. If if he has a point. If he has a goal, it's to get people to expose their true nature. That's what he seems to be doing throughout most of the film. That's his. That's why he eggs Batman on to hit him. We know when Batman's driving the bat pod towards him, you know he's saying, "Hit me, hit me!" Like he wants Batman to hit him. He genuinely wants Batman to like kill or maim him because then he would prove who Batman really is. You know who what his true nature is. Yeah. Uh, he knows Batman won't do it, but if he does, then he has proven that Batman's true nature is that he's a killer. Well, he even even says it when he's hanging upside down. He goes, you truly are incorruptible. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. I mean, I think if one thing would be that he, it's like he's out to prove that there is no order. There is no control. Like everything is just like one domino push away from the whole thing collapsing. Well, it's why he's so, it's what he does throughout the film. He's trying to get the people of Gotham to prove who they really are. That's why he's so pissed off when the people on the ferries don't blow each other up because he thinks that their true nature is yet if they, they'll do anything to survive, even if it means murdering hundreds of other people and then they don't do it, proving him wrong. Uh, He was wrong about his assessment of what, the society what the people of gotham's true nature was and it eats him up you know well it was what it was what bruce was telling ross al ghul as uh, as his house was getting set on fire give me more time there are good people here yeah, yeah. <laughs> they well, just all happen to be on that boat <laughs> well you know it's funny you say that because i mean one of the the parts i love that i noticed this time watching it through too is like uh, referencing back to raz al ghul bruce loses himself a little bit in this pursuit and then alfred's the one trying to explain this to him mm-hmm. that you're not going to find a motive you're not going to find the reason this is happening and he tells him that story about i think it was like in burma or whatever that yeah yep. They had to, yeah. it's like, did you ever find him? You know, we set the whole village on fire or something like that, or yeah. we set the whole forest on fire. But he's like saying, you know, that that thing that some people just want to watch the world burn. But Alfred's like, when they're first having that conversation, Alfred's chasing him down. He's like, no, you're not, you're not understanding this or something. And Bruce like turns to him and says, criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. It's like, he says something. It's an exact quote from Ra's al Ghul from Batman Begins. Oh, wow. And I thought that was, I don't think I ever cool. realized that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because I mean, you see Alfred do it because as Alfred's talking to him, he starts looking at the screens and Alfred has to sort of get in front of him and just go, look, yeah, criminals aren't complicated. This isn't a criminal. This is something else. Yeah. So back to the making of the film for a few minutes, but just as he had done on Batman Begins, Nolan shot this film on location as much as possible. Uh, this time, a large portion. I mean, he shot a little bit in Chicago in Batman Begins, but he shot a good chunk of it, 13 weeks, I think, in Chicago this time around because he had what he called a truly remarkable experience when he shot Batman Begins there. Uh, one of my favorite little tidbits from the filming is that when, you know, a lot of times movies will shoot under fake names. 
like Blue Harvest, you know, like Star right. or Empire, I think it was shooting under Blue Harvest. Yeah. In Chicago, they shot this movie under a fake title called Rory's First Kiss. <laughs> uh, and which is uh, not a Gilmore Girls uh, prequel. I was hoping, but no. It's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's Nolan's son. Is Rory? Oh, is it, his son's name is Rory. His son's oh. name is Rory. How about that? Weird for your dad to name your movie after your first kiss, <laughs> right? <laughs> and for it to be fake, there's a lot of things we could read into it <laughs> about that. And it didn't trick anybody. Like no, everyone in Chicago knew this was Batman Begins. It was a yeah. mil, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in production, <laughs> with like thousands of jobs created in the city. They knew what they were doing. They. It's not like you can get everyone to shut up. I um I you, it's interesting. You mentioned heat earlier and actually now that you're now that i'm thinking about it this supposedly started off with the same deal as like i think we, i mentioned it in batman begins it i don't know if this is the thing that nolan does on every movie uh as we learn more about him we'll find out but uh the first four days of shooting was no film rolled it was nolan screening movies two movies per day for the cast and huh. crew and uh the, the movies they showed were heat cat people 1942 citizen kane king kong batman begins black sunday Shows clockwork orange and stalag 17 uh, wow it's a great it's a great bunch of movies yeah yeah uh, i don't I, I don't know where king kong fits a lot of those i can kind of see where their influence is on this uh even like citizen kane i mean those you know i can see i can see a lot of that king kong i'm not sure but uh, i would be interested to ask unstoppable him. force I'll call sure. him and okay. uh, see what he says. Call Chris. Uh, I will say too, another fun story about Chicago is that while they were filming there, like uh, concurrently, or I think that's the right word, right next to their their shooting, Wanted was being shot. That that other comic book movie, yeah. and Morgan Freeman's in both, so he was working on both at the same really? time. Wow. Yeah, and so this will be fun so, for comic like, book nerds. Lucius Fox starts talking about the the Joker as this <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> well, Mark Millar, uh, who wrote Wanted, yeah. uh, slowly figured out that Batman was happening. I don't know if it was through Morgan directly or whatever, but he snuck his way on set uh, for the Batman movie. And uh, he was found sitting on the Batmobile at one point, <laughs> and security had to escort him out. But it sounds like something Mark Millar would do, honestly. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Before he goes, ha- before he goes to have a little snack of a fifth of Jack. Or no, it was the bat pod is what it was, because he was, like, trying to ride the bat pod. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> he would have killed himself. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> so unlike in Batman Begins, Nolan didn't really try to hide the identity of the city this time around. He, uh, You can see visible Chicago landmarks. You can see the Sears Tower and Navy Pier. Like, it's clearly Chicago in this, in this one. Uh, they used an abandoned Brock's Candy Factory for the uh, – for the Gotham Gotham General Hospital, the one that the Joker blows up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and its demolition actually prompted some people to call the police because they thought that there was a terror attack happening. It's uh, always a, it's always a good sign. Yeah. So and f- so for scenes that needed to be filmed in a studio, Pinewood Studios near London was served as the primary shooting location. Prime, Pinewood, of course, legendary studio where a lot of James Bond was shot, Star Wars, like it's a, a major studio in London, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, similarly to what happened in Chicago, at one point while they're filming in London, this is not in Pinewood, but at uh, the Battersea Power Station, just outside of London, uh, they had to film a scene where they had to rig a 200-foot fireball. Uh, it was 
for something in like what was going to be, I think the opening credits, or it was something that wasn't used, but 200 foot fireballs, they blew it up. And local residents there also called the authorities thinking that terrorists were attacking the power station. You should tell people if you're going to blow shit up. It really feels that way. It does. I mean, I even saw like when they were put a note on a door. If you see something, say something. I mean, that's what they're doing. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I saw something about too. Like, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but like, even when they're doing like promotional stuff, they were sending out cakes with like cell phones inside that would like make them vibrate. And there were wires coming out of, and they would oh, send shit. them to like newspapers and stuff. And so, like, one <laughs> like poor oh, decision. What a terrible <laughs> decision. <laughs> like, what oh, building was evacuated? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> but, yeah, just insane. There's like cakes from the Joker. So Jeez. for for scene the scenes where Batman chases Lao to Hong Kong, the crew. As Nolan likes to do, he likes to shoot on location. If he's setting a, a scene in Hong Kong, guess what? We're taking the whole crew to Hong Kong. And that's yeah. what they, they did. But that was apparently, according to Wally Pfister and, and several other crew members, it was a nightmare. Uh, they, they clashed with like city officials in Hong Kong. Uh, they, you know, they would complain about the noise of like the, the helicopters and all this stuff. In fact, it was such a pain in the ass that, like the the scene where Batman gets jumps from the skyscraper, you know, yeah, uh, that was supposed to be practical, a practical stunt, and they had ended up having to do it digitally because it, the local officials in Hong Kong were being such a pain in the ass. Jeez. Well, point one, I think this is the first movie where we've ever seen Batman operate outside of Gotham, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, like very cool. travel. You yeah. can see his. Uh, yeah, I mean, because obviously in the comics that happens. I mean, ar- around this time in the comics, I think Grant Morrison was working on the comics around the mid two thousands, and his shit, Batman battles well, aliens and shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I don't want to get it twisted. By the way, like that stunt, Paul Jennings, the stunt coordinator. I mean, he he made this happen. Like they had prepped for this. It's yeah. nuts. Like they they had to tether a guy to a helicopter. So that's why there was helicopter activity. The, uh, I think I saw the stuntman was uh, Buster Reeves. And he did. It's like, pronounced Rhymes. Is it Rhymes? Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes. Yeah, that's yes. who it was. Yeah. It was so it's a fast talker. So it's hard to pick up on what he's saying. But <laughs> no, no he actually did the fucking jump. I mean, the, the trick part is, is like, so imagine you're Batman and you're like scaling down, like just the side of the building and then you're going out they can't let him just fly off into nothing so he's tethered to the helicopter and he's swinging out but now he's a pendulum so he's coming back with momentum so that's where the helicopter comes into play because as he goes out and he starts to come back the helicopter takes off away from the building so that when he swings back you know he doesn't grossly smash against the side of the building Uh, (laughs) but yeah unfortunately the chinese government they didn't want all this helicopter activity over the city so they ultimately did what's that the hong kong government yeah true true they're a separate entity that is that is correct so yeah thank you for for specifying we don't want any trouble <laughs> the the jump though they, they did ultimately really do the jump in a green screened like room like it was a 120 foot drop this dude did like tethered and just like i mean just the dive part of it like into like just nothingness you know with the green screen so it's still sort of real yeah and uh and that is christian bale by the way everybody was impressed that that is him standing on the ledge of the building in Hong Kong 
when you get that cool shot yeah around and that already would make me shit my pants i would yes. just like to specify <laughs> yeah was he strapped in i'm surely he was tethered somehow you'd think he yeah. would have they, they might have like cgi'd the like the lines out that were tethering him to the building or something yeah they're not just gonna the insurance company is not uh, yeah i was about to say the insurance <laughs> company would lose their shit <laughs> he seemed to have a lot of the i, I saw interviews with the stuntmen who were just like no that was him he just like insisted yeah he insisted he, a lot like, he's fearless he just wants to walk out <laughs> on that ledge nolan also famously filmed several key sequences in in the dark knight in the imax format uh, which made the film the first feature to use that format uh, the scene's that he shot. I think there are four total, but that includes like the opening bank robbery and the car chase that comes halfway through the film. And if you saw this movie in theaters, and I cannot remember if it does this on on home video, I didn't pay attention to it. But the aspect ratio actually does change because it does. Course, I noticed yeah. this when I was it watching. It, okay, it, it, it does it on home video. I couldn't remember. I watched it a few days ago, but I didn't. I didn't think to pay attention to it in the theater. It was very apparent. Apparent if you saw it, because um, I saw this on IMAX when it came out and an IMAX screen is much closer to like a square. Uh, it's a very tall format. Yeah. It's closer to a square. So you can actually see the aspect ratio change when those scenes come around. It's, it's pretty incredible. And of course you don't get the same effect seeing it at home, obviously, as you do in the theater, but Christopher Nolan is a big proponent for the theatrical experience, much to his detriment in the year of 2020. Uh, <laughs> you know, but he wants you to see a movie in a theater. He wants you to see it in the best possible format. And shooting on a an IMAX frame of film is enormous if you compare it to like a thirty a typical thirty five millimeter or even a seventy millimeter. It's bigger than, uh, so you get just a level of detail that is unmatched in any other format. And Nolan actually edited the original film element of the IMAX on this because he knew that if he had scanned it and edited it then he would actually lose resolution so he wanted to edit it in the original the original piece of film which is commitment man that's commitment and, and the reason that films don't usually shoot in imax is because it's a really tough format to shoot in yeah. uh they're much larger much heavier than standard cameras oh yeah uh, don't hold as much film so you can't shoot for as long and well, it's like a standard 35 millimeter goes vertically like what you picture like a projector doing like with the spinning right. wheel but like uh imax is horizontal yeah like these slides are or the film is so much bigger like on it it's just uh it's kind of impressive but that's yeah. what makes the cameras so much larger also and heavier yeah. and they're also I mean, super noisy so it makes it really difficult to to record dialogue when you're yeah. using it well when it can, works because uh, i don't know how you guys watched it you probably have a, a digital code but i actually put the blu-ray disc in the player and just fired it up and god it looks so good like it's i it's one of those uh people probably don't think um it makes a difference but i think it's really the difference that makes it because i yeah. mean those those visuals and just the attention to detail it's a gorgeous really, yeah it's, it's beautiful that's, that's one beautiful. of my favorite parts about it this time is is yeah just these wide city shots and like that. those those like sweeping shots of the city that he does and See, he like up until this, most of his films. Yeah, and I mean, up until this point, it's worth mentioning. I mean, you're talking about Nolan in the theatrical experience. I mean, all you've ever seen IMAX used for up till this is like fucking 
two penguins hanging out on a beach or some shit. Yeah, like, like uh, I mean, I used to watch them. I used to go traveling a lot when I was a kid, and I, I remember going to like uh, the Grand Canyon, and that you you go to the IMAX theater there, and it's a it's a IMAX movie about the Grand Grand Canyon. I saw one at in San Antonio, and I saw one about the Alamo, and you know, it's all it's nature documentaries. Basically. Nobody had ever thought about it before this point about using it as a dramatic tool as opposed to like documentary stuff. Yeah, I mean, there had been other movies that had been converted to IMAX format prior to this because I know a couple Disney movies, uh, Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, Star Wars Attack of the Clones uh, had been released in the IMAX format. But even then, those at the time, an IMAX movie could not, an IMAX projector could not run a film past uh, about 90 minutes. So like, the uh, like when I saw I saw Attack of the Clones on IMAX and they had to cut out a bunch of shit. They had to like edit it. It was actually better because they edited all this dumb shit between Padme and Anakin, <laughs> all that love story shit that's right in the middle of the film that just is terrible. Uh, right. They cut all that out. It's the best version of that movie that I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> they should release re- release release the, the IMAX cut. cut. But no, no, like Christopher Nolan, it feels like was the first person to use his leverage. And and like you said, with the theatrical experience, he went to the studio, was like, hey, this is what I want to do. This movie is going to be epic. It's going to have action like nobody's ever seen before. And if you want the most bang for your buck, I think I can make that happen with these cameras. And uh, it's going to bring the audience like into the action. Like we're talking about, it's not a simple process either. I mean, the film crew i think had to do like uh, at least a week of imax school to see if they could learn how to manage the cameras and move like they normally would with the 35 millimeter i mean you kind of hinted on this like uh, for instance everything about your uh focus is totally different uh on one hand like the focus is more shallow than a normal film uh, because it brings like the image in so much i think you've got like inches to work with instead it's a very very short depth of field yeah, wow. exactly. And then, like you said, too, the, the screen on an IMAX is like eight stories high. So the audience focus is entirely different because you can't just take that whole screen in. So it's yeah, on a, on a true IMAX screen, which a lot of the IMAXs that are around the country, we've got one near us, are what I call a mini IMAX. They're, they are not nearly the size of a true IMAX. A true IMAX, uh, the, the seating is very, very steep. So every every seat is very close to the screen and the screen literally takes up your entire field of vision, no matter where in the theater you're sitting, you cannot like just look, you're having to look around. You're having to move your head and like look around at the screen to focus on different parts of it. So, so when what you see are the like a sweeping you- shot, like the car chase or something, you know uh, it's a very different experience. Yeah, so one of the things, I mean, you notice, like, especially, like, in that bank scene, for instance, instead of a center-focused image, like, the top of the screen is a lot more background stuff because your eyes don't focus above right. what's going on in the screen, you know? So it's 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 weird how they, like, had to angle this They thing. had to frame things a little differently. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, that's the words I'm looking for. So, and... Uh, and that's one of the things Nolan loved, though. Like uh, he he said that, especially for the Joker, he said it was like a laser beam to Ledger's eyes. So again, Nolan with uh, loves the eyes, fapping the eyeballs. We're gonna they're gonna they're gonna raid his house one day and just find jars of eyes. In <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and you mentioned this too, by the way, too the 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 issue of how damned heavy the things are. A thirty five millimeter camera is like something like 
I mean, like literally, I think it's like about 35 pounds. And then when you're talking about Steadicam stuff, you have to think like a Steadicam is like part of this apparatus that that's like leveraged away from your body. So it's so much more heavy. Yeah. I saw people talk about that. That like means that really that camera weighs like 80 something pounds when you're carrying it with an IMAX camera. It's like over a hundred pounds you're carrying the yeah. whole time. And, and I guess this is probably a good point to, uh, to mention too, that at this time, there are only four of these things in existence. Uh, building them took forever. Yeah. And uh, these guys, they broke one. <laughs> so they, uh, it was it was during the armored car chase they had them like side mounted on 18 wheelers uh the ultimate arm that i'm i think i mentioned it last yeah, uh, yeah. week uh they had it beefed up and uh they had one on a car there and uh anyway as things go they uh they crushed one they crashed so, it whoops <laughs> and uh I'm totally well, worth, well as long as we're talking about the totally car chase the end product uh, one one of the new additions in this film, design wise, is the Bat Pod, which is Nolan's Bat versus take on, I guess, the Bat Cycle, the the Batman's motorcycle. Uh, Nathan Crowley, the production designer who also designed the Tumbler in Batman Begins, uh, designed this, and he designed six models to be used in the film, and it is re- remarkably not just not a visual effect; it is a working vehicle. Yeah, the Bat Pod. Yep. It has these huge 20-inch tower tires on it. And the engine of this thing is in the hubs of the wheels. Yeah. Uh, and you're basically, the rider is lying down on top of the gas tank. Uh, Christian Bale, try, you know, like he did with the uh, the previous stunt we were talking about, tried to insist on doing the shots of Batman on the Bat Pod himself. But the stunt team was like, hell no, we can barely ride this thing. There's <laughs> You are going to kill yourself. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh there was a stuntman, Jean-Pierre Goy. He doubled for Christian Bell during those scenes on the Bat Pod. And he was the only one who could balance the bike. He yeah. was the only one who could do it. He even said in interviews that he had to nearly unlearn how to ride a motorcycle to manage the riding the thing. Because you steer with your shoulders in this thing. Mm-hmm. Like you, you see Batman's hands are in these like inserts. He's like where he can like control the guns and stuff. So your arms are actually in those and you're kind of controlling it with your shoulders like this. Uh, it's insane. What yeah. a, an insane piece of engineering. Because looking at, because even just when he's going through sections of buildings where you can see it's polished, it's polished tile. Yeah. And just knowing how slick that is to begin with. And he's having to tip this thing up on its edge to it's get around certain work. things. I'm and watching that this time around, I was just like, oh, my God. That's I'm what happy. I love forever. I'm happy when we can mention the stunt guys because, yeah, I definitely yeah. had uh, Goy down to, to mention because, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I was I was actually going to lead into that saying like that 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 chase is I think it's like lower Wacker is where it's at. And like mm-hmm. Nolan had loved filming there in yeah. Batman Begins. So like that's that's why they went back. And they and God bless him. He wants to do everything practical, but he couldn't do the Batmobile crashing into the garbage truck properly. So those were like one third models. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, which, which is, is still more practical than just doing it CGI. Sure. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I would like to that, have that Batmobile personally, or even yeah, the garbage well, yeah. truck, just a one third size garbage truck <laughs> in the backyard. Uh, uh, but it was the I first time they crashed. These, uh, well, the thing I love about the Christopher Nolan's movies. 
and these Batman movies specifically, since that's what we're talking about, is his love of just movie magic. Like, yeah. like not like he uses CGI, but he uses it sparingly and as needed. But the way you're supposed can, to, yeah. But if he can do it practically, if he can do it like they like his heroes would have done it, you know, guys like Ridley Scott and 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 Stanley Kubrick, those guys that he looked up to, Steven Spielberg, uh, he's going to do it that way. Like he wants to do everything. He wants to shoot on film and he wants to do practical stunts and he wants to do real working vehicles and he wants to crash real fucking cars. I think that's cool. Yeah, no, you know? it is cool. Yeah. And 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 he he's got a he seems to have an appreciation for cars. I think you get that with the Lambo that he drives later and stuff too. But uh you know, they in, in one interview I saw he described like he was going to destroy the Batmobile in Batman Begins. Like it was going to blow up. But they backed off that because they were like, "No, it's it's like a part of the family. It's become yeah. a character now like we can't destroy <laughs> it." But I think maybe the Bat pod helped ease that pain this time like a yeah. like a phoenix rising out of the ashes we get the bat pod <laughs> so we can destroy the batmobile that this ejection time. moment is so good too yeah, oh it's so cool looking just the it's way so cool that it looking. attaches the tires on and stuff yeah it's just fucking cool one of the things too is you could see how excited and some of the stuff i watched that they get because they had designed the bat suit with a uh this backpack thing that yeah. like the cape was going to go up inside the the backpack because they were like sure that you can't ride the bat pod with the cape because it's going to get caught up in the wheel you yeah know? we've all seen the incredibles no kicks yeah there you go <laughs> but they said the first ride out uh goy like drove it out had the cape flowing and it just flapped and stayed in the air it and it just cool and it, they were like that looks so fucking cool like, <laughs> and it kind of looks like bat wings it's kind of like yeah yeah. Yeah. And so I just thought that was kind of neat. One of the things that they definitely had to use CGI on because the other option was to um, set Aaron Eckhart on fire uh, <laughs> was, was Which again, a, completely practical. Look over here. The guys who did the special effects actually did complain about having to do the CGI fire on his face when he's on fire because they're like, things don't just burn halfway. Like half of something doesn't burn. Something yeah. catches on fire, the whole thing burns. So they had a hard time actually figuring out how to make that look right. But of course, to do his two-face, the effect on his face, they had to go digital because they couldn't have used prosthetics. Nolan didn't want to use prosthetics because prosthetics inherently add to the face instead of taking away from the face, which is what happens when you get burned. So... Eckhart on set wore like digital markers on his face, you know, yep. and a prosthetic skull cap over half of his head. And then they digitally overlaid the, the two face, you know, the burnt face. And that was done by a British effects company called frame store. And it's not like a hundred percent medically accurate because they, they admit that they exaggerated some of the muscles and bones and things to make it look cooler, you know, and, and they actually said that they, they went, a little more realistic at times. Like at first they tried some versions of it that were a little more realistic looking, but they said it was just too much to do it that way. So they they actually went as, even though you can look at this and say, this is the most realistic version of Two-Face that's ever existed. It's actually not that realistic at all, uh, medically speaking, but. It's so cool to see that eyeball moving. Oh like dude, that. you think he has to use eye drops like all the time? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That would, <laughs> no eyelid. That would suck. But I just, I mean, even though it's digital, I mean, that's some good looking digital work. It's like, great that's, work. It's yeah. really great work. And it's fantastic. It, you know, work. this movie's 12 years old now and it's aged incredibly well. Yes, I thought yes, it is. It I thought it looked like look it, that looks like a legit chicken wing. I just want to bite his face. <laughs> <laughs> that would that's ultimately like the person he doesn't want to run up against. No. <laughs> like, you look grilled him. to perfection. <laughs> crispy. <laughs> just extra crispy two-faced face. <laughs> oh my god. So the Dark Knight original, original on, recipe. The the Dark Knight opens on July 18th, 2008. Uh, of course, open to overwhelmingly positive reviews, uh, record-breaking box office numbers, pulled in over $1 billion at the global box office in 2008. In the U.S., it was the highest grossing film of the entire year, and it has pretty much ever since its release been considered one of the best films of the 2000s and one of the best superhero movies of all time. Roger Ebert, gave it four stars in his review and said that it redefined the possibilities of the comic book movie. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, won two of those, one for Best Sound Editing and, of course, Best Supporting Actor for Heath Ledger, which was, as we all know, kind of a bittersweet award. It was posthumous. It, it was a few, So a few months after he finished filming The Dark Knight, while the film was in its post-production stage in January of 2008, Heath Ledger passed away from an accidental overdose of medications. And it's this movie is sort of Heath Ledger's legacy. I mean, this is the, the role that he will forever be associated with. And it's a shame that we didn't get to see what else he had in him because he's so fucking good in this movie. Yeah. Man, when you just like turn him loose. Yeah, I mean, you're saying all that. I mean, this is the first, I think the first comic book movie, you know, like where Batman had proven something in like 89 um, this is the first comic book movie to reach like, I think that 1 billion mark. And, uh, this is, it's the highest grossing Batman movie and, uh, especially highest grossing movie of any, I think of any of the DC movies and, uh, all of that had been Batman 89. So this was like the next stage in comic book movies. It felt yeah. like, uh, even in China who just, you know, Hong Kong, who wanted to give them all kinds of shit. I think they banned this movie and, uh, uh, it ended up being one of the most bootleg movies uh, in the whole entire country or yeah. something. And uh, but you know, and Heath Ledger, like you mentioned, I mean, he posthumously won like 32 Best Actor in a Supporting Role awards for his work. Uh, he won the what they call the Quid Tuple, the Oscar, Golden Globe, BAFTA, SAG, and Critics Choice Award. Wow, just. Uh, well, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but when there's that one scene where he's hanging upside down, sort of having the last back and forth with between him and Batman, and he says, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. I still get chills. I loved that. Because that that is that is how we will always remember it. Yeah. I, yeah. I wanted that to happen. And and for what it's worth to just to throw this in there, since we're back on Heath for a second, I mean, there was a lot of rumors that abounded during this time that the role of the Joker really did this. This is what the Joker does to you. And it just takes you to these dark places and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I read a bunch of stuff from his family who says that Ledger suffered from insomnia his whole life. Like yeah. that was a, a big problem that he had. And he was often mixing sleeping pills to pills together with other prescription drugs. He had gotten his sister 
said that she had literally talked to him the night before about how he needed to chill with that. Like he had to stop doing that because it was dangerous. Yeah. And then uh, unfortunately, you know, the one night in 08, he took a mix and, and that was a fatal combination. And it's what killed him. But everybody you ask about Heath Ledger during this time, in in role, yeah, he was the Joker and he was wild and stuff like that. But like I, I saw like Michael Jai White on a, a podcast talking about the atmosphere of that set uh, was relaxed and cool. And Heath Ledger uh, was so chill and he was one of the best co-actors he's ever worked with. And uh, he looked like he was just having so much fun doing this movie it was not like some deep dark it wasn't like he was being haunted by being the joker he right, right. he he was taking medications for uh, a variety of ailments uh including like gary said insomnia he had ox he did have oxy in his system but oxy can be prescribed legally as much as people do abuse it and he had uh, anxiety medication uh that he was taking and it was just a lethal combo that unfortunately took his life you know yeah yeah it'll yeah it'll, <laughs> i mean that stuff's meant to sort of bring you down you know all of those things that you were uh that we just listed off they're all they're all quote-unquote downers yeah take enough of them <laughs> your heart shuts off that's yeah. what happens that's sadly yeah. that's that's so, it yeah. man that's what happened to the dude there were no just no like tricks to that it's just yeah and, and probably the oxy. I don't. I don't even think I realized the oxy was in there. But I mean, in my real life job, I mean, I deal with that kind of stuff all the time. And and that's uh, I, I just not like directly. But anyway, my point is, it's like that is a huge, huge issue, like yeah. in the world today. Like that right. is nationwide, and we've lost a ton of people, a, a ton of talent to that exact kind of Especially thing. Especially recently, even even in the the years since since Ledger's death. So Batman Begins was unlike any movie that had come before it. Uh, any other superhero, uh, I should say, any other superhero movie that had come before it. But The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight, honestly, like watching it this time, I'm like, this is not really a superhero movie. Right. This is, this version of Batman operates like a public servant more than a superhero. Yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned last week how even though Batman Begins was always touted as like this, you know, this newfangled grounded approach to Batman. Like it still had some kind of goofy comic book elements like, you know, the Batman controlling bats and and the scarecrows hallucinogens. None of that's present here. Uh the closest comic booky thing is maybe the the sonar tech, but this one doesn't really have that kind of stuff and Unlike so many other superhero movies, like there are no world ending stakes. Batman's not trying to save the world. He's trying to, there, there, there are no shared universe connections. Uh, this is a crime thriller. Yeah. Disguised in a cape and cowl. Yeah. Like this yeah. is, this is about Batman just trying to save a city. Uh, I, I watched a really great, uh, really great YouTube video. I'll try to remember to link it. Uh, there's a great YouTube channel called Lessons from the Screenplay. This guy, he uh, he analyzes screenwriting. He's really, really good. And he talks about what makes a great antagonist. What And specifically in regards to The Dark Knight, what makes the Joker such a great antagonist to Batman's protagonist? And it's not that they're polar opposites. 
in in screenwriting and in, in storytelling, often the protagonist and the antagonist are after the same goal, right? Uh, the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Belloc and, and Indy are both after the same thing. They're both going after the Ark of the Covenant, right? They're just going about it their own their own ways. Right. Uh, one's one's you know more nefarious in his practices and how he gets there, but they're going after the same thing. And the way that this guy analyzed this is that what what are Batman and the Joker both after? They're both they're both going after the soul of Gotham City. Yep. Batman's obviously trying to save it. The Joker's trying to sort of unmask it. You know, like that kind of goes back to what I said before about how strip it raw. He's trying. Yes, he's trying to show people's true nature, and that's what they're fighting over. But it's not the end of the world. They're not. This is not Infinity War. You know, there's and, and. I've I've talked about this on the show before, or at least on the old show, that I think that makes the stakes more personal, yeah. uh, because as, as wild as some of the events of this film are, the idea of a boat of people blowing up is much more believable than Thanos snapping his finger, and we can relate to that a little bit more because we have seen terrorist attacks where a boat or a building blows up. That's something we can relate to as human beings more so than something that like, you know, the infinity gauntlet. Right. So we connect with it a little bit more. Uh, it's, it's less spectacle maybe, but it's more personal. It's more human based. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You know, when, um, and not to take anything away from an Infinity War or Endgame, those no, are great I love movies, those movies. But, I mean, but you know, different goals. When Scott Lang is running through those through the the pillars with all the names on it, it doesn't really hit home until he finds the name that means something to him. Yes, when true. we go when we go into these boats, and I'll say both boats, we actually get a glimpse of these people who are staring down the barrel of well these barrels, and uh, you know. It's, it, it brings the okay this is it this is this is the these are the people that we're gonna lose we got a mother we got a business guy we got you know all these all these people and it just they could be your next door neighbor it's not just some could be your friend tiny lister hey, <laughs> tiny lister absolutely. i do appreciate that it was him that was finally like i'm gonna do something you should have done at the beginning of this you yeah. know and throws the remote out at least they they gave him that thing you know, I wish I had, as I was watching it, I was like, I want to have this much faith in people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do. Tough. Uh, it's tough. And, and honestly, like when you watch this compared to more other recent comic book movies, if like watching it this time, I was like for an, for a comic book movie, there's relatively little action. Like there aren't a lot of action scenes. There's a couple, there's the, the car chase, I guess is the biggest one, but most of the other even set pieces, like, the heist at the beginning, that's not an action scene. It's a very well done heist, but it's not a lot of action to it. There aren't a lot of car chases. There's one car chase. There's yeah, I think exactly you get Batman one. like trying to bust through the building to take out the uh, Joker's people, you know, like right before the uh, yeah. boat thing. That's uh, But if you compare it to something like the Marvel movies that is like nonstop action, you know, uh, yeah. this is a, it's a very different feel. I think it's carried by performances completely. Like it is. I it's mean, a character piece. 
I mean, like for me, the one thing that stood out, and I think it did before, and I just I haven't seen this movie in a while. And uh Joker in the fundraiser, like actually that whole scene, like even from Bruce talking about Dent all the way up until the Joker showing up and like that whole thing, that's one of my favorite parts in yeah. this time around was I just thought all of that was just so amazing. I don't know, it was just so intense the whole time. It was just so good. No, I agree. Uh, if there's one thing that I would uh, say is a weak point in the movie, it's the portrayal of Rachel. Not not Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think she's quite good, but Rachel is just sort of around to be a damsel in distress. Yeah, the entire film. And and Nolan, like, he doesn't write women well. Women are his movie are his movies are about dudes. I mean, Dunkirk doesn't have a single woman in the entire movie. Uh, you know, he does not write women well. They're always sort of an object they're 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 very when they appear at all they're hardly characters at all the the biggest character female character he's probably written has probably been uh maybe the wife from the prestige i was just thinking the prestige you know, you know, I, I mean even you know, i mean you've got uh what's her name there's the Carrie daughter in interstellar yeah, the daughter in Interstellar, I think, is pretty good. Uh, actually, rewatching that one recently, I was I was impressed by that that relationship. Uh, but he typically doesn't write a lot of strong females. Yeah, and in the case of this movie, I mean, I, I really think she doesn't. She just doesn't have a lot to do other than be in be in danger for <laughs> for most of the movie. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, I, uh, I will, I will, I would like to go back to something from last week if we could and say <laughs> that Batman's growl in this one did stand out to me. It's a little. It was a lot this time for some a little reason. much, especially when he's talking to <laughs> Lucius when they're in that room. But this is the only time I think that Lucius and Batman talk as Batman and not as Bruce Wayne. Uh, when, when they're in the, the room with all the screens, you know, they're talking and he's still talking to him in that growl. Like Lucius knows who you are. You don't have to do that. <laughs> cool it. <laughs> but he does it. He does it too. When he goes and takes out dent, like yeah. uh, when he, when he comes behind him and like, puts him to sleep, when uh, Rachel is there, uh, he immediately, like, as he puts him to sleep, like he switches like to that voice. So <laughs> you could say that's like, maybe that's a uh, psychological choice or something. Um, I do appreciate, uh, oh, there's so many things I was thinking about with this movie, but, uh, since we're talking about Batman real quick, I, the suit, I loved that legitimately all the reasons that they had for changing the suit, uh, they're legit. It was uh, function over fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, they decided to upgrade because they were focused in on this, like being a suit of armor as opposed to like the, the rubber suit. Because they wouldn't be able to make upgrades. And it's just, it's crazy to me to think about because this is, they didn't know about Iron Man at this time. So it was just kind of cool. Like, just uh, this is before MCU was clicking. Uh, this is, this was influential. It's the same stuff. summer as Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. It's the same summer as Iron Man. But uh, just them trying to keep it grounded and, and for it to make sense. Uh, they wanted this suit to be flexible, faster. The old suit was like too much weight to be carrying around. And they stuck those reasons in the movie as the legit reasons that right bruce would change it it's all the real deal and they finally finally 
nailed down him being able to turn his fucking head (laughs) (laughs) by giving him basically a bat helmet instead of just a regular cowl right they create like a separate neck piece he has a helmet that goes over so it's a super functional Uh, he doesn't have to rip the rubber like michael keaton did oh my god (laughs) yeah (laughs) i do love i don't know if this was intentional or not but i saw like somebody point out that um you know when he he talks about the dogs uh, there's there's a cool YouTube channel since we're we're throwing props out. There's one guy called the Canadian Lad who has a YouTube channel, and he watches every movie in point two five speed um, to see like what he notices. Every one of the movie, thing, I mean, every movie he covers in that a, channel. <laughs> and, uh, so mean, props he, to you, but he he went over like the scars from the dog bite carrying over from scene to scene and stuff like that. Uh, but I think I think it was him that pointed out. That like even there's the scene where like Bruce and Lucius are talking about the suit and the armor and he's like, well, it work against the dog and he's just like running into a lot of dogs on your mountain trips or something or something like that, and he says uh, he was he was speculating that Lucius does say like it should work against cats that like he was speculating against the time that uh, old Michelle Pfeiffer like. Stuck the claw. Oh, stuck is, her claws uh, in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was neat. There is a weird thing, by the way, because I also those those everything wrong with people. I watched their video on everything I hate great. Those videos. Well, they do now. They do like the everything great about this movie, and so I try to watch those sometimes. And one of the things they pointed out is that dog thing that uh, that there's some weird Bruce versus dogs theme running throughout this movie, and that like. Bruce has the issue with the dog at the very beginning, you know, or the dogs. And then Joker gets Joker, a, a mad dog. Yeah. Like Joker's yeah. at one point riding in the car, like sticking his head out the window, like a dog. Uh, <laughs> and he says uh, to Gordon, like, or, or I forget who it was. Maybe it was dead or whoever it was. He's just like, I'm just a dog chasing cars. Like I wouldn't even know what to do if I got one. And uh <laughs> And it just, uh, I don't know. It was just weird. And then by the end, Joker actually has the dogs with him. Yeah. Like there, there's like, I don't know. Just kind of interesting little interesting. side note. I also, by the way, since I'm doing this, I'm sorry to keep carrying on, but uh, the uh, there was another YouTube video that I watched was like freaking amazing. These guys called the film theorists and they take like some point in a movie and really just drive it into the ground and it is crazy they take the stack of money that the joker sets on fire and the video is like is joker secretly a billionaire and it's just (laughs) because like he sets this money they mathematically analyze that pyramid of bills and they come up with i'm not going to go through the whole thing watch the video but they come up with it that is literally like 4.686 billion dollars in that stack is what it would have to be. There would be like 468,000 straps of what they're assuming is $100 bills uh, based on what they saw in the bank vault earlier in the video. And uh, But they say that that's not even insane because in 2008, they look up this thing and the mob was supposedly had been moving 50 to 90 billion per year. And so they were like, that's why everybody laughs or something when Lau talks about like, or nobody gets like crazy about Lau talking about the uh, 68 million he stole. They're like, that's Trump change to these guys. They're (laughs) like, that's not even a huge thing. Uh, So that Joker just apparently just probably has like 
uh, stacks of cash somewhere, like just in, bil- in wow. the billions. Well, with the way that his goons at the very beginning were talking about him, it sounds like he's been in operation for a while. Yeah, well, we, so, you know, I mean, we saw his calling card at the end of Batman Begins. Yeah. So, and I don't know how much time has passed between the two. I'm not sure. I know between this one and the next one, it's like 10 years, but it has. Well, I think, I think he said, well, I mean, Joker says, let's wind the clocks back a year. Okay. So you can guess, long. you know, 12 to 18 months, maybe. Gotcha. It's fun. It's all like speculation, but it's just fun to look at that stuff sometimes too. Like uh, just even that, you know, going back to the Joker's character, just like how in control he is although he's like trying to portray like I'm crazy. I'll burn a bunch of cash and stuff like that. He you know, clearly there's, knows what he's doing. Yeah. There's like a theory that he's like ex military or something just because yeah. of his ability to fight. He knows how to operate like every single gun. Like he, he just seems proficient. Make, uh, makes triggers and things with from the close-ups. You can see there's not a lot going on there. So he's able to put some stuff together there's even, I, I think works. there's even a segment It's when he's talking to Harvey, like he he's telling, like, he's like, you know, what's funny. And he's like telling him these stories. But one of the stories is truck full of troops are in this situation. And well, then, you have know, you, like th- this may come from Patton Oswalt's theory that he put on Facebook a few years ago. Have you heard that? Oh, I don't think so. So mm. pa- Patton Oswalt, everyone's favorite nerd. <laughs> this was like. Oh man, when was this? It was probably, it was around the 10th anniversary. So about two years ago, probably. Uh, Patton Oswalt, I've actually got his quote here. Uh, he, he starts talking about, it's, it's a pretty lengthy post, but I'll just read a little bit of it. His basic theory is that the Joker is a war vet suffering from PTSD. Uh, he says, I just watched The Dark Knight and another wrinkle came to mind about the Joker. What if he's not only ex-military, but ex-military intelligence, specifically interrogation? He says he seems to be very good at the kind of mind fuckery that sustained professional interrogation requires. His boast about how I know the squealers when he sees one, the way he adjusts yeah. his personality and methods depending on who he's talking to and knowing exactly the reaction he'll get. Mocking Gamble's manhood, invoking terror to Bryant, the false Batman, teasing the policeman's sense of loyalty to his fallen fellow cops, digging into Gordon's. Uh, isolation, appealing to Harvey Dent's hunger for fairness. He even conducts a reverse interrogation with Batman when he's in the box at the police station, wanting to see how far Batman will go, trying to make him break his one rule. Yeah, and that's that's insane, but it, it really feels that way with besides all this stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, just how in control he feels the entire time. Um, he's manipulative. Yeah, yeah, completely manipulative. And uh, I, I thought one thing in the in the thing was funny too is it's ironic for the point I'm about to make um, is that every time he tells a joke, nobody laughs. But when he says something that he's very serious about, a lot of people laugh. Like in that mob scene was very cool. Like yeah. when he says, like you know, like oh, you're gonna hire me to kill the bad or something like that. That everybody laughs. But like you know, he's just like. Um, I I don't know. It's just weird. It's like his humor is completely off from them. The other thing that triggered me about the Joker this time, I don't know why, but this stood out to me is when Batman's like punching the shit out of him in the interrogation room and the Joker's just laughing harder. Is there anything scarier than that? Am I the only one who has those dreams sometimes (laughs) where like you're in a fight with somebody and you cannot hit them hard? Yeah. 
Like you're just like <laughs> punching and nothing's happening. I've, and uh, it reminded me of that. I'm like, yeah. that's got to be so goddamn frustrating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things. That's him trying to break yeah. the Batman, you know? Yeah. There, I mean, there's, I, I've, I've, throughout my martial arts career, the, uh, there's enough guys who do some mind games during, during matches and it, it screws with you and pisses you off. And I've done it. I've done it. I've been able to do it a couple times myself. And it's so satisfying <laughs> in terms of, you know, kind of getting some sick pleasure out of it. But uh, one of those ones is just being the guy who you just can't hit or when you get hit, it doesn't phase you in the slightest. And that's got to just, Oh, just, Oh yeah. So that's a great scene. And there's uh one of my favorite things I already mentioned him kicking the door open and you know, his exit, but shortly before that it's subtle and it's, it's quick. And in comparison to the rest of the scene is almost a throwaway line, but you hear someone go, you're crazy. And, and just, and just him just, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He gets very upset. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm not. And it's, <laughs> I still get, ch- and, and the look, and again, the eyes. Yeah, I totally get it. Like, look at his eyes when he's, yeah. he, he he's glowering in, at him, locks into whoever yeah. said that. And he's like, and it's, it's a little bit of an anger, but it's sort of like, listen to what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm no, that's, that's crazy. honestly, that I'm glad you pointed that out because that actually is one of my favorite moments in that scene as well. It's yeah. really great. Yeah. Uh, so, after the success of The Dark Knight, Hollywood kind of doubled down on its approach to genre filmmaking with, with the words gritty and realistic and dark just being thrown around like nothing. And I talked a little bit about this last week, but it doesn't work for everything. That's how you end up with movies like like the 2015 version of The Fantastic Four or the oh. 2017 Power Rangers reboot. Oh. Terrible, terrible movies, both of them. Yeah. Uh, both of which whose that, that gritty approach just was not justified. Uh, that's the thing. It doesn't work with every, with everything. Like I, I'd say the only, the only thing I could think of, the only franchise I could think of that tried to use the kind of grounded, realistic approach that worked was rise of the planet of the apes. And that's because it, it, it had a reason for taking that approach that made sense. And I think those films they, they fail because they didn't understand exactly what the Nolans and, and, and David S. Goyer were doing. They had a reason and a vision for why these characters should be grounded in a reality that at least somewhat resembles our own. You know, you, you can take Batman and you can make him grounded and realistic without taking away the elements that inherently make him Batman because Batman doesn't have superpowers, right? Correct. You can't do that with the power Rangers, right? You, you can't do that with Johnny storm. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It definitely feels like street level. Like as far as you're going with superheroes, like street level superheroes, like maybe even like some of the Netflix, uh, Marvel characters, yeah, you know, like pretty Daredevil makes Daredevil. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. It works. It makes sense. Cause he's just a dude. Yeah, I mean Daredevil has a superpower, but it's a it's barely a superpower. You know, Not what I mean, a superpower like that protects you from getting your face broken if somebody exactly you. like he hears real good, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and, and I think this is what makes Batman specifically more than probably any other comic book character 
uh, I, I think that what is what makes him so great is that, and, and why there are so many vastly different versions of him out there. He's malleable. He could, yeah. he, Batman is kind of a blank slate. I mean, at least on film, I know in the comics, you, there's a lot more depth depending on at what point you're reading, but he could, Batman can be campy and colorful like the 1960s Adam West version, or he can be, your, your goth boyfriend, like in the Tim Burton version, or he can be your day glow Schumacher Batman, or he can be the realistic Batman of Nolan's films. He's kind of a perfect canvas for a filmmaker to kind of project their own interests upon, you know, because well, well, Nolan, this is very much still a Christopher Nolan movie. And he's still very much telling the kind of story that Christopher Nolan will continue to tell in his other movies. He's just using Batman as the instrument to do that. Right. I think along with what you're saying there is, you know, because I am a big um, Batman fan and a big comic book fan, I've read quite a bit of, uh, of the mythos and you can see like more than a blank slate. He's almost a mirror for the times. Like when it was in the sixties. Yeah. It was, you know, big, bright, colorful, campy the 60s you know in the 80s things were getting kind of dark so batman reflected that this, and that was also a, ref, a a response to the previously yes. established version as right. this was as this was a, yeah. a response to the schumacher version whereas i mean and i'll go as far as to say it reflects the society so as we as a society progress whatever direction we progress in that ends up being what is reflected back in us in our, in our mythology and well, sure. and, and that are, you know, comic books, comic books are our modern mythology. Mm, like the, the upcoming Batman's where he refuses to wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and going kind of in, in the direction that you're going, Todd, like if you view this version of Batman as a reflection of its times, this is a post nine 11 Batman. Yep. Uh, it, I mean, there was a, this was, this film came out in the summer before Barack Obama was elected president. This George W. Bush is still your president. This is a post 9-11 Batman that exists in a world where the the idea of using this is a Batman that exists in the in a world where the Patriot Act is a thing. That is where where illegal surveillance or what what would in previous years have been illegal surveillance uh is being used to to find and persecute terrorists. I mean, this that is what Batman is doing with his sonar thing. That is what Christopher Nolan is commenting on yep. in that scene. I mean, it is yep. 100% commenting on the Bush administration's use of surveillance. Yep. Uh, and, and that's, I'm not saying that, I don't think this is an inherently political film. I think Batman, I, I think The Dark Knight Rises gets a little more specifically political. I don't think this movie has a political point of view. Uh, there are people who would argue with me. There are people who would call Batman a fascist in these films, but it is definitely taking a point of view in regards to that one specific issue. I think yeah. it's at least saying that 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 particular thing is wrong. But I think what it tries to do is walk the line of saying like, it's a necessary evil. It's a necessary it's evil. Like, is this a guy who's I like, don't, and, I have and, to do this though. This is the the point where this has to be okay right now. And the movie isn't necessarily agreeing that that's the case because it's got the it's got Batman's conscious in the form of Lucius Fox, right? The guy who's saying this is wrong. 
and right. we should not be doing this. Well, well, even take for instance, I mean, the idea of like you live in a world where, well, who knows, like all kinds of. Uh, let, let's just be real for a second. I mean, we're in a world where we all have iPhones, and iPhones are technically probably made by slave children in China, and so then there's there's all of these things going on in the world today. It tackles the fairy situation. Uh, where in the end, nobody blows each other up. But technically, right before that, one one fairy did decide to blow everybody up. They voted on it, and they yeah, voted to yeah. do it. <laughs> and they and so it was like this: like, well, if I don't have to do it myself, like if my hands aren't, you know, if I don't have blood on my hands for this happening, yeah, well, fucking kill them. And I think <laughs> and that so was it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah, and I think that lends a little bit to to Joker's point. Talk is cheap. Like you can, you know, you can talk and you can vote and all that stuff, but when it comes time to pull the trigger, who's going to step up? Well, and that, and what do, and what does that say about you? So I mean, it it while it is to Justin's point, it is not really a political movie. You can't help but some of the but notice some of the things that it addresses. It's a super. It's a it's a movie that wants to tease you with some of those political issues but it's not going to give you answers like it's it doesn't like, necessarily it, take a one point of view over the other right right so, yeah, so it's dancing we, around that before we wrap things up guys i, I do think i, I want to address the end of the film you know because this is i think where it's where the film gets its title the dark knight it is it is you could say that that title comes from two different places it's batman becoming the dark knight because he now has to you know he he now has this crime hanging over him which of course we know he didn't do but it's also about harvey dent's transformation from who you know bruce early in the film refers to him as gotham's white knight becomes two-face the dark knight uh but this is you know what i kind of what i kind of touched on before that this is a turning point in bruce's story this is a point where he and todd kind of hinted at this earlier as well he has to, he's become that symbol that he, he speaks about, but it's not the way that he envisioned it. Like he has to eventually, he has to become the villain as you know, and then that's a turn in his journey that he wasn't expecting that is going to have consequences uh, in specifically in the next film, of course. Uh, yeah. How do you guys, how do you guys read that ending? he has to take on that role as part of being a, well, almost like what you were talking about before about Batman being malleable. I mean, even in this universe, Batman's malleable, that symbol's malleable. Like it's yeah. whatever it needs whatever for the greater good. Like then that's the role I have to take. That's part of it. Well, and so it means more to have Gotham's white knight than to have uh, somebody actually be corrupted. When you think the most, uh, you know, it's like you got to lie about it. This person was never changed. This person fought till his death. He, he the he's a hero with a face. Yeah, right. And I think we see a lot of that. Um, you know, Bruce has to make the decision because of the things that Harvey has done. I think it's perfectly put on display through eventually uh, named Commissioner Gordon. First of all, when he, <laughs> which I mean. My wife still, I can, I can feel when she's sitting next to me, tense up when the two, when the two cops show up to Gordon's home to tell, uh, to tell Barbara that Jim's dead and hearing her yell at Batman, 
for bringing this craziness on us is you he's starting he's starting to really see what this what these decisions cost yeah and when he when he ultimately says hey look let me be the symbol i killed those people gordon is very resistant at first and he goes no 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 and he he ends up having to force his hand with the radio in it call it call it in and and he takes off it's 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 what needed to be done and we're going to see the fallout from that in a grand and grand fashion in the next movie uh but this is this is this is what it takes and this is what it costs and he had to he really had to force jim's hand to do that cool well do you guys have anything else before we start to wrap up Oh my God. I mean, the thing is, I, mean, is I listen, know we, we could talk about this movie for, yeah, I was about to say, I knew, yeah. I knew we were going to go long and I, and, and, and we're talking about a top five movie on IMDb. So like there, <laughs> I mean, people have been writing essays about this for the last 12 years. Yeah. We can't possibly cover it all. I mean, we can well, do our best. We were just, but, we were just talking about the, we were literally just talking about the things that, uh, that this movie brings up that create discussion. Here we are uh, over a decade later, still running long. We easily blew through two hours. Yeah. Uh, talking about this movie, talking about this comic book movie, a comic book movie. It, yeah. it feels like the, here's the thing. I know Gary had not seen this movie in quite a while. I, this is the second time I've watched it in like three months, probably. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like if you haven't seen this movie in a long time, you might forget just how great it is because I feel like its legacy seems to have been lost in all the t-shirts and the Joker posters and the memes, but it is, if you get past all that and look at the actual film, it is a great movie, not a great yeah. comic book movie, not a great, great superhero movie, just a great movie period. Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing. I mean, we're in a world now where like the MCU has blown up Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, I even read a great article. Um, I think it was Polygon or somewhere where somebody just did an analysis on how this movie upset uh, the Academy Awards. Like that people were pissed at the time. Yeah. This didn't get a Best Picture nomination. I like, do. Everybody was that. expecting it. And it well, and what happened with that, I hope this is not stepping on a point you were going to make, but what happened with that is that the the Academy took the wrong lesson from that, just like Hollywood did with this movie. Instead of saying, hey, we should include more types of movies and more genres, they're like, let's nominate 10 fucking movies. And instead of just <laughs> nominating a more of a wider variety, they're like, let's just throw more spots and we'll nominate 10 movies next year. And then you get movies like extremely loud and incredibly close getting nominated for best picture, a movie that nobody gives a shit about, you know, <laughs> instead of taking the right lessons when it's like, let's not just let, let's just maybe consider genre movies. Yeah. Yeah. I think where the article's point was going was like, this is one of the first movies that sparked that discussion that, it 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 at least began the movement that, yeah. that we we get to the point of genre movies just being included right um, in, in the discussion of course it took some evolution to get there but no man i had so many more things like uh did you see the uh colbin reese the guy who was the uh the fucking you know like gonna expose who bruce wade was you know yeah. he's constantly referred to as mr reese 
And uh, there's a theory that he is uh, Nolan's version of the Riddler. That's stupid. I hate that. But that's a theory. (laughs) That's that's a dumb uh, theory. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't know. I just thought, you know, it was like, maybe that is a a nod there. I don't know. I remember remember somebody somebody made a I mean, you're talking about he's driving a Lamborghini. uh, What's it called? Like a Murcielago, which is like uh, Spanish for bat. Um, well, I saw that somebody did a fan film, um, that was to take place in the Nolan universe that had, uh, the Riddler as, uh, an FBI agent who was brought in to, you know, oversee an investigation into the organized crime. And of course, into the, the bat, the Batman. Um, and I thought that, I thought that was an interesting approach to that character because, uh, well, that, that would make sense. Yeah, I would like. I mean, I would point out, like, I mean, a couple of notes I made just from that point two five speed guy. I mean, just little. What's crazy about it is it seems like a lot. I'm glad I'm not that guy doing that. But one of the cool things that it points out in a movie like this is like how much attention to detail Christopher Nolan pays, yeah. and it's just insane. Like the idea that when Gordon's interrogating the Joker, like he's talking about, like where is Dent, and he's like, "Well, what time is it?" And he's like, what, what does that have to do with anything? So it's like, depending on what time it is, he could be in one place or he could be in several. And uh, Gordon like gets pissed and he stands up or he like, I don't know if he reaches out. I can't remember exactly. Whatever he does in slow-mo, you can see the Joker turns and looks at his watch and like stares at his watch for just a, a brief moment. So he knows what time it is. <laughs> and it's just insane. Just uh just just all of these little stinking details that just just make so oh oh the other one I was thinking of is in the fundraiser scene. Joker with his shotgun. This is where I f- realized that the shotgun reappears over and over throughout the movie. He has the shotgun in the fundraiser scene. He fires it up into the air, and there is a wide shot. And when he fires it into the air, everybody in the room flinches like they freak out alfred stands perfectly still staring <laughs> at him that's great <laughs> and, I and i just thought that was like wicked i'm like that's so cool well it's, it's really kind good. of what they established a little bit in batman begins is alfred's, alfred's kind of a badass, badass. <laughs> hey so we know that the critics pretty much loved this film but before we wrap this up completely because i know todd's got another podcast or something to do here in sorry a bit. todd uh, we're running along, but no, it's okay. It's, what put, happens when you're I'll the special every, guest? I, yeah, <laughs> I'll put everything aside to discuss Batman. Uh, before we move on, we have to discuss that there were, there are some movie watchers that might not have loved this movie as much as some of the critics did. <laughs> mm. Justin, it sounds like to me you're discussing that somebody might need a nap. <laughs> I love that so much. Uh, <laughs> let's start off this week with Philos, who gave a one-star review on Amazon. He said, uh, one star because this is the worst portrayal of Batman I've ever come across, having been born in 1935 and experienced the comic book era from the start, listen to all the comic book characters on the radio, etc. I have wonderful memories. Batman is not my favorite character. I think Captain Marvel is, but I know and have enjoyed them all. Nevertheless, the scripting of Batman was terrible, and his voice sounded weird. 
One star because this is a really awful portrayal of the Joker. It's not the actor's fault. He did okay. It was just poorly scripted, as was Batman. So, so many have portrayed Batman in various movies. The current actor seems so immature. Go figure. I know many, perhaps all, will disagree with what I've written here. This is my opinion. I mean, actually, I mean, I guess that rounds it off pretty well. Yeah, how about this one? Bill Cosby. Get off my lawn uh, review there. <laughs> wow, what a turd. Saw this for two bucks and thought I would see what the hype was about. Christian Bell absolutely sucks as Batman, period. The set and car were nothing special, despite being harped about through previous films or harped about previous to the film's opening. I suffered through 55 minutes and thought that was long enough. And what about the famous Joker and Heath? Been there, done that, nothing special. And if he hadn't jerked off while popping too many pills, he wouldn't even be mentioned. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. Whoa. Listen, it's, it's not a bad way to spend a Friday night. <laughs> mm, Pop a bunch no. of pills and just see how long you can last. How, yeah. Perhaps I mentioned Radio GB here who gives it one out of five stars. Not enough nudity. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, legit complaint, honestly. <laughs> oh. All right. That's it? No, no, no. I was going to say stick this out with me because now okay. I'm getting into the real the real nappy. The nitty gritty. The oh nitty gritty. Uh, one right, seems like uh, a mentally unstable person and one seems like a legit just angry person. Um, S.E. Martin. The title is Unhealthy and Morally Corrosive. Please do not show this to children or mentally <laughs> healthy adults. It is not a moral guide for children to pattern themselves after, which is the purpose of this genre. It is the opposite. It depicts the hero as a morally confused individual unworthy of children's aspirations, and it corrupts or kills the two other lead characters. It represents standing up for what is right against evil as useless and even harmful. It promotes the sort of moral confusion and cowardice that allows psychopathic monsters like Hitler, Lenin, and Stalin to take power and murder millions of people. That's they are giving a Batman a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of credit. <laughs> they are a focus for a coalition of sociopaths who want to rule and terrorize everyone else into submission. They can gain power only when most people are too morally confused by their propaganda and/or are too cowardly to take a stand against them. They have no power unless people give it to them. We need to evolve past this or continue to suffer atrocities on large scales. This movie promotes the wrong response and leaves us vulnerable to allowing monsters to take power. Destroying children's heroes and their models for who they decide they would like to emulate should never be allowed. If the makers of this movie wanted to deal with dark and morally negative stories, they do not need to degrade and destroy well-known and well-loved children's heroes to do so. This movie is reprehensible. Does that guy know that, like, in Batman's first appearance, he shot, like, three dudes with a gun? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. All right, I'm going to do one more, and we'll let it go. This review is being written about four years after the film's initial release, and very close to the last installment of the Nolan's franchise. While a one-star review is a bit harsh, it can be justified. I hadn't seen the film since the opening weekend four years ago and thought it was solid, so I decided to finally pop in the Blu-ray. I could barely finish this film. Like other reviewers, the Joker's insanity level was full throttled the whole time. While he did explain a brief story about the Joker's alcoholic father, the character was one-dimensional the whole time, had zero depth of motives beyond insanity. The Joker character also had gobs of different cronies at every turn, the opening robbery, the scene invading a dinner party, the scene capturing the black mob boss, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every time these followers seemed willing to die for the Joker's cause, which was nothing. Were they paid? Is it ever made sense where these literally hundreds of bad guys came from? Even insane Arkham recruits would have been incompetent or killed the Joker themselves. Also, the Joker's elaborate plans of bombs, robberies, kidnapping, kidnappings, escapees, re-escapes, mind games, poisonings, and power plays would have been impossible to implement either by resources, time, or manpower. I know it's a comic book film, and it needs to be allowed some leeway, but it was so unbelievable. This film is titled The Dark Knight, but there was barely any Batman or Bruce Wayne involved, albeit in limited doses, most of which was just punch throwing. I give it A plus for action and special effects, but there was no feeling behind what was happening. The, the runtime was way too long, and I feel the peak happened when the Joker was trying to kill Dent in the SWAT fan. This was halfway through the film. I probably won't watch this film ever again, but it drags to make me feel for any of the characters or storylines. While the film as a whole isn't terrible, as the title suggests, this film is a product of being ridiculously overhyped, overrated to the point of madness, just like the Joker. Obviously, this is my opinion. There are a thousand five-star reviews. I know I'm in the minority. I'm looking at The Dark Knight Rises with hope, but it looks like more of the same. Wow. Wow. Anyway. You, sir, you, sir, might need a nap. <laughs> well, that's it. That's it for our discussion on The Dark Knight, because otherwise we will go on for two more hours, and we're not going to do that to anyone until next week when we talk about The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, if you guys want to watch that along with us, you can find it streaming in all the usual places, I am sure, or head to cinemashock.net, where we will have a link to all the places where you can stream that. Uh, or buy the Blu-ray, or whatever you want to do. Uh, so, thank you, Todd, for joining us. Thanks Sorry for having me. Over. Thank you, Gary, for reading those wonderful reviews. Todd, you, you guys want to tell everyone where you can be reached on the internet? Yeah, I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, D&D Beyond. T-shirts are available. About D&D Beyond? D&D. No, uh, my personal comedy T-shirts. I hope just I DM. Get slide up in his DMs. Yeah, yeah. If you want to, if you want to, if you want a cool T-shirt designed by our good friend uh, JP Newton, can't John you? Paul you Newton. can't. Isn't there a button to purchase them? Like on your there is. Facebook if you, page? Yeah, if you actually go to my uh, Facebook fan page, uh, the shop now button will take you directly to uh, JP's uh, site where he's selling the T-shirts it's on and Etsy. It is it other is organisms. Yes, other organisms. Yeah. Gary? Gary is at This Is Gary Horde on all of the websites. I don't have any t shirts for sale, but if you would like one, you can DM me and I will cut the sleeves off of a shirt just for you. And I will, uh, I will send yeah. that over. I'm Guns out Gary. Right now. <laughs> I am at Justin underscore Bishop. I have lots of t shirts. None of them are officially for sale, but I everything's negotiable for but you would sell price. one yeah you would sell everything has a price money. yeah, yeah. <laughs> until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather be excellent to each other johnny has the keys was that your no, joker voice Is that i think it was the joker I, I was it was i was trying to go just subtle with it i didn't want to really try to try do a joker do voice try again take two <clears throat> do, do your right. do your joker voice let's see Joker, uh, Joker, Joker has the Joker keys. has the keys. <laughs> Johnny has the keys. <laughs> I, it's, it's well, you're giddy. Now. You're laughing a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it feels yeah. like it could be Todd Davis as the Joker. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's it's, this, I'm done. Let's keep this I'm going. Done. I'm useless. Guys. <laughs> All right, we, we should go now. We've we've overstayed.